my name is Brendan. I am joined, as I am every week, by my co-host Kate. Hello. And today we are joined uh, by friend of the show, uh, Jeremy Mongeau. Hello, Jeremy. Uh, hello. How's everybody doing? Grand. Yeah, doing good. I was trying to think of a succession quote, but... Oh, were we supposed to do quotes? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, bring a selection of quips. Uh, I, I just I just do dad shit every time and probably annoy uh, <laughs> everyone with it. So, um... oh, it stays in. It stays in. <laughs> so, Jeremy, we're thrilled to have you because, I mean, you've long been one of my favorite people to talk you know, television with uh, online. Uh, but also, you were, I believe, a, a day one fly guy, you know, like us. You were there from the start. I was. I was a early adopter, you know. Uh, I, I, I'm actually a kind of uh, sensitive about it just because everybody, you know, everybody says succession started weak. But uh, I, I, from the get-go, from the pilot, I thought this is the next big thing, you know. Uh, don't get me wrong. It, 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 it It's not an all-time pilot uh it's not you know michael chiklis killing another cop while uh ba with the ba plays <laughs> uh but you know i i thought just everything was there uh, the, the potential of the show was there uh, and so i am happy to see it uh proven right uh you know tenfold yeah 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 everyone exactly. everyone's on board now it's like you can't like I can't not see succession content in my timeline. Whereas before I was like the only me, Brendan, you, Gabby, maybe a couple other people were like the only people even talking about it. So it's such it's weird. It's such a different a different you know feel out there. Yeah, it's, it's the zeitgeist now. <laughs> exactly. Before it was a cozy experience with you know. 12 of us faving each other's succession tweets every week. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now now it belongs to the world. Uh, but what did you feel so strongly about in the pilot? Uh, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit more on that, because I know that you were... You, you did feel quite strongly about it from the get-go. I mean, I know I knew I liked it and was interested right away, but you felt quite strongly about it right away. Can you speak a little bit more on what was, what was present that you felt so strongly about in the pilot? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm a real, you know, uh, thick of it head, uh, and I think this uh, just carried through. It had the bite, it had the stakes. It, it, not all of it was there yet, but there were enough hints of it, and I think the cast was there from day one. I think, uh, you know, Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook, uh, Matthew McFadden were all just doing just just really stellar work, just even in that first episode, even in those introductory bits. Uh, and yeah, I just think there was a, uh, you know, uh, 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 th th there was enough there that was telling me that, okay, this is getting things right, that other shows that were really aiming for this uh, got wrong, you know, like Veep, uh, in my personal opinion, just did mm -hmm. not carry through that thick of it legacy. But this had just the, 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 the tension uh, was here, the, the tension from the get go. Right, it's a certain existentialism that was like definitely missing from Veep. I, you know, I also I was a Veep fan. I enjoyed Veep, and I watched uh, the thick of it afterwards. But but um, yeah, Veep was definitely lacking something, um, especially in regards to the thick of it and Succession and the stakes. Uh, you know, as you said. Yeah, I, I don't get me wrong. I think Veep is a. Uh solid show it just uh mm -hmm. you know it lacks that grandness uh that you see here 
I wonder if you could speak on then, Jeremy, how you feel about um, this interesting dynamic that I sensed right away, which is just that, you know, the way the show feels different and what we've sort of, you know, jokingly referred to as the season two glow up, where obviously they've now got a bigger budget. You know, everybody's everybody's costumes and makeup look a lot better. Um, but what do you do? You, what is what do you feel has shifted between season one and season two, if anything? What did you sense in these first few episodes? Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like they're kind of just uh, going for it. I, I think this season there's more of a, a a sense of that prestige, even in the ways they might subvert that a little. But uh, it's uh, I, I, I the show it feel it feels like there's uh, almost not 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 quite a period piece, but it feels like it's a historical drama about 2019 because it has that historical irony uh and that's something that wasn't always there in season one but right now in season two there's just that sense of dread uh and you know uh, going on right now you know yeah some kind of sense of this hermetically sealed world that they're taking place in where everything feels somewhat predetermined i think maybe in the first season you had to kind of see what the show had up its sleeve before you could get that and now that you kind of know um, you know, they're able to just kind of play with this sense that like, oh, yes, we're, we're quite capable of doing, you know, what we did in the last season um, and really kind of cutting the legs out from under you. Absolutely. Um, so we're here today to discuss episode four of the second season, which is entitled uh, Safe Room. And uh, one thing we were talking about, I know, as we were kind of preparing notes for this episode is how, you know, in the first season um, you know, we've seen the show kind of at its best when the characters go to like a second location and everybody's kind of trapped in the same place together. Um, and this is very much an episode about being trapped, but they're in uh, somewhat of a, a place where we haven't spent maybe this much uh, extended time before, which is uh, the Waystar Royco headquarters. Um, this is, I think, one of the first episodes where we really spend just like an uninterrupted chunk of time here, you know, and kind of see a whole day in this place. And uh, I think that, you know, this is a little bit different because it feels like, you know, finally the setting is relevant to almost all the characters, right? You know, Shiv's part of the drama now. Ken and Roman are both really invested in the drama here now. Um, Tom and Greg finally have things to do here. Um, so uh, it, 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 it feels like uh, they're able to use this building in a way they haven't before. Yeah, I, I'd say so. That's That's one of the things I've noticed about the way they're using the cast this year, which is that everybody's playing, everybody's spinning, everybody is sort of actively pursuing their destiny, even if they uh, don't know how to get it or are just, just messing up in the process. Uh, so uh, it makes sense that you're seeing them, you know, gravitate closer to home this go around. Right. I think the closest we came to spending this much time last season was Sad Sack Boss Trap. Um it, at ATN and in in the office, um, well, especially at ATN, um, but yeah, there's definitely a full day we haven't experienced yet. Yeah, it's Deadwood, right? We're set. We're it's sun up, <laughs> sun, sun up to sundown, right? We're we're in ATN where the sun never sets because you're constantly under the fluorescent glow. Um, but um, uh, you know, we our friend uh, Vikram Murthy was tweeting this week about how. You know, what big the big thing that makes the show work is it really commits to, you know, episodic storytelling. It really commits to telling an individual standalone story every week. Um, and 
part of that this week is like we said it you know takes you through the span of a full day and this very eventful day where a lot happens um and you know this and every everything is kind of orchestrated around this central event of this potential shooting or this act of violence that takes place at atn and how that impacts everybody around them um I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me is Deadwood and how all of those episodes took place, you know, in the span of a single day. Um, Did anything else come up for you guys watching this? Uh, Actually, I would say so. Uh, The the thing this episode really kind of felt like for me was a uh, bizarro uh, episode of The Newsroom, Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom. This was, (laughs) you know, you you have the corporate plots going upstairs. (laughs) You know, you got the the drama of the news. And I'm just imagining a world where we were watching the newsrooms take on, you know, potentially Nazi anchors and, you know, Antifa protests. And I I have never been happier to have succession in my life. Well, Jeremy Sorkin just signed on to another... Jeremy Sorkin. Jeremy Strong just signed (laughs) on. (laughs) Oh, God, no more Sorkins, please. Um... Just signed on to a, another Sorkin movie, I think, I saw in the last couple days. Did you guys catch that? Uh, I did not see that. Well, that um, honestly kind of makes me sad. <laughs> I know. And I saw someone quote tweet it with, like, Jeremy Strong is the perfect Sorkin guy. And I was like... Yeah, legends supporting legends, right? Oh, it it, it was painful. But, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't watch the newsroom, but I I'm sure you're totally accurate about all of that you didn't have to watch it because you live <laughs> right I, I mean yeah watching uh some of the subplots in this episode like even just like the mention of antifa i was like can you like honestly can you imagine any other show literally any other television show ever bringing up antifa and not finding some way to trip over their dick about it in the process and just make some asinine attempt at a political point um you know in this show they kind of keep it to um, an illustration of what's going on in the outside world and how kind of aggrieved and defensive the Roys constantly feel. Like they, you know, uh, Sid says in this episode that ATN's under siege, and that's very much how Logan always behaves, as though he's in this defensive posture. So, you know, things like Antifa and these political protests happening on the outsides are illustrations of the outside world. Uh, but the show doesn't try to make a big point about, you know, what Antifa means, et cetera, except insofar as, you know, what it means to these characters. Yeah, I think the show does a tremendous job and we've really spoken on this a few times. Um, but just to shout them out again for, you know, trusting the viewer to fill in the blanks and not like over kill and hit us over the head um yeah with over you know political points that they want to score or whatever it's 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 part of the setting of the show and how it impacts the characters is where it's relevant as you said it's uh they don't need to do anything else yeah they they, they really managed to thread the needle there uh there there are so many landmines and they avoided them you know With, with the nazi anchor there was a way they could have gone too cynical or uh you know not nearly cynical enough uh and they at least found the compromise of a way to get him fired but without it being you know because of the goodwill of the uh characters themselves right right yeah and another thing that they bring up as kind of you know an unexploded landmine in this episode is you know sort of me too stuff with uh the connor subplot where connor ends up at the funeral of uh logan's deceased friend uh mo 
he brings Willa there, and Willa quickly finds out that his name is not Mo. His name was Lester, and that he was given the nickname Mo Lester as sort of a joke on what may or may not have been uh, some, shall we say, questionable uh, preferences on his part, as well as the group of elderly gentlemen known uh, friendly as the Wolf Pack uh, that are also attending the funeral. <laughs> Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of explicit how Connor did describe Mo Lester to um, to Willa saying, you know, just, you know, old Mr. Fiddlesticks, Uncle Meat Hands, dad wouldn't let us in the <laughs> pool with him. But, but, you know, the guys of that generation, it was a different time. Um, and again, Brendan, like what he's doing is he's like alluding, you know, without... Uh, um, you know, again, hitting us too hard over the head with like the Me Too stuff in a different time. And uh, but but, you know, it, it's a it's a call to, you know, the systemic shit that's gone on for like, you know, not even just decades, centuries. And um, but they don't have to do a whole Weinstein or whatever bit, you know, it's just a an aside comment. Um yeah, and again, it's what does this stuff, what is the significance of uh, these kinds of people, of this kind of, you know, uh, violence or exploitation existing in the world? What is the significance of this to these characters? And in this subplot, it signifies, you know, Connor is all, you know, pumped up about, he's got a donor boner. He's all pumped up about going to a room full of rich fucks uh, to try to get uh, some funding for his presidential campaign. Um, but uh, what Willa is realizing is that Connor is stepping into a world that he's extremely naive about. You know, he really suggests in, you know, those lines of dialogue about his, you know, memories of Mo from childhood that he's really <laughs> suppressing something, <laughs> um, you know, kind of how, you know, Roman has, you know, alluded to, you know, suppressing some memories or things like that. Um, and uh, it, it may be that Connor has some things that he's either choosing to or uh, uh, prefer would prefer to not remember. Um, in those scenes. And so Willa kind of takes it on herself to protect him from this world that he's venturing out back into. Yay, Willa is caring for Connor still. There's a, <laughs> I think they're, you know, which I mentioned in the last episode, building a legit relationship. I'm, I'm happy for the couple. They were surprisingly effective here, you know. They, they, you can see them kind of working in tandem. It was this, this was a, a good episode for uh, Quilla or Conilla or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> uh, how, how about how about Quillette? There, there you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, like, the relationship still kind of makes sense, you know, you see that Willa's fondness for Connor is limited enough that you can explain it as a kind of Stockholm Syndrome, and, you know, she's looking out for him in the sense that she's also looking out for her meal ticket, right, and he, she wants him to continue funding his, her, her Broadway play, and, uh, you know, he, he obviously just kind of, uh, wants to continue on the deluded path he's on, so she's just trying to continue to shelter him. Uh, sheltering in this, you know, continued theme this episode has of, you know, safe rooms and safe spaces and things that these characters are protected from or shielded from, um, whether they ought to be or not. Uh, speaking of kind of isolated characters or people venturing out into the world, uh, Roman is venturing out into the world of the Normos, as he says in this episode, for the six-week management training program in the Parks Division, um, where he... Uh, uh, has to kind of sit at a desk and see what the company uh, really looks like and 
how it's how it seems to other people who are trying to get a leg up on the ladder. Uh, Yeah, Roman has that uh, incredible line. Uh, I think uh, no amount of antibacterial gel is going to be able to wipe the America off me, (laughs) which is just just vintage Roman, vintage, uh, you know. In a call call to Jerry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The precursor, the first call. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how much we want to dive into the Jerry stuff right away. Yeah, Uh, no, 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 no. Or or lay out out just a little bit more of the significance of what Roman's doing here. I don't know. uh, uh, Kate, I know you and I talked about this subplot a little bit. Um, I um, uh, I didn't uh, have too much to say about it. Um, I thought it was interesting to see Roman kind of, you know, yeah, outside of his comfort zone for a while. And I liked some of the gags about how, you know, he's very affronted that he's expected to pitch something because what if he doesn't have an idea? What if he doesn't have, you know, the best idea or something? And then the (laughs) idea that he does pitch for a ride is some absolutely psychopathic, you know, violent (laughs) fantasy where it's like, yeah, what if we make people think they're going to die and inflict real terror on them? (laughs) America would love it. Um, yeah, I, one of the funniest gags I thought was just that he had to dress up as a um, one of the characters um, from Waystar movies, and he had to dress up as the turkey from the film that he didn't want to be made the greatest turkey of them all, I believe. From... <laughs> like the, the, big, the biggest turkey in the world, I believe it is. Yeah, and like he's so disgusted with it that he was he left a relationship because she showed it to her child. Um, you know, and, and so he has to get dressed up as that, like, the turkey and he had that fun gobbly go fuck yourself line. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. It was fun to see him in with normies. No- as he calls them normos, I, I don't know why the show didn't get it right. They're so spot on with so many things, um, you know, in terms of normies versus normos. But but we'll forgive them. Uh, it, could and, be rich, it could be as rich person version, you know. They, they could have their own version of a normie up there, you know. No, but yeah. <laughs> the elitism... There's like a whole nother set of vocabulary once you reach a certain level and you're given, um, you know, your shared Google Doc with with all the words and, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's on the uh, he's on the Mastodon instance, only accessible to billionaires. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's also where they get the the code words for the secret orgies. I'm sorry. I just watched Eyes Wide Shut again last night. uh, no, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really, really, really liked the character Brian, um, who uh, Roman ends up working with um, in this group project. Um, I thought he was really funny, and the character or the actor Zach Cherry like was so confident. Um, I haven't looked at his filmography, but I think he's a pretty. He doesn't have a long resume, and so I was really impressed with like his confidence in going, you know, it, pairing with uh, Kieran Culkin and what's become, like, the greatest show on TV. Um, so a lot of people are thinking and uh, had some real funny lines. Um, also, it's really funny, Roman tells <laughs> Brian that he likes to store sertraline, 
uh, off models' bodies, <laughs> which is literally Zoloft, okay? That's like a fucking antidepressant. It's an SSRI. You wouldn't get high from it. In fact, it'd probably like destroy your nose and you'd feel awful. So that was a fun little little bit of dialogue as well. Very yeah, they're just They're just trying to think of creative ways to take their antidepressants. <laughs> acceptable ways, right? Like... Yeah, exactly. Socially acceptable. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't. I can't get. I can't get away from this party to take my meds. How can I sneak them in without leaving the orgy? Or like mental health is, you know, so stigmatized in those upper echelons that. But if yeah, they're exactly. snorting it as like a party drug, then it's okay. I love it. Love it. But yeah, oh, the the. God. I, I, I just have to do the little Brian uh, four segment, like no context, Roy co like uh, dialogue really quick or monologue. He's when he's talking to Roman, Roman's like, I'm uh, Ron Rockstone. Who are you? And he's like, me, I'm an enigma. You can't pigeonhole me. I'm there and then I'm gone. I'm intellectually promiscuous, but culturally conservative. I work hard, but I do not play hard. I play easy. And again, uh, hearing my rendition, you'll understand why Zach Cherry is, um, I'm lauding his performance so well. I didn't do it any justice, but I had a lot of fun with that. (laughs) It's a very weird weird character. Well, yeah, and that's why I think he's cool. He's so specific and, like, weird and eccentric, and Roman wants to fast-track him into, <laughs> into, the, big, into the big house we learn later on. Yeah. yeah Jeremy? He, he, yeah, he, 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 I, I was just thinking he, he's kind of, you know, uh, uh, Roman's fool, you know? He, he, he's Roman's, you know, kind of the jester, and Roman's a fool himself in his own family. So it's like uh, it, just just kind of a little uh, doubling there, you know. Ooh, is it like it's Greg's Tom's Greg? Uh, that, yeah, yeah. Tom's it, Greg, it, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 I also wanted to bring up that the turkey thing I think comes from like Disney management training, where they make the executives wear the goofy suit. <laughs> um, that is that is uh, that is a, a, an excerpt from the. Um, uh, the Michael Eisner at Disney book Disney War, which I know Armstrong has talked about a bunch, oh, yeah. uh, talking about yeah. the writing of this show. Um, but yeah, uh, the uh, sort of <clears throat> climax of this uh, Roman storyline is that we finally get to see uh, what exactly uh, gets Roman off, um, where he attempts. He had there's an abortive attempt to have phone sex with Tabitha. Um, where he just he seems to be able to he seems to be just like totally unable to you know talk through it as any normal person would and like go where she's very gently leading him um uh but instead he ends up calling jerry and seems to and uh actually gets off on her kind of you know reprimanding him and shaming him and then eventually she gets into it with him and uh we see that he has this real kind of like shame and humiliation fetish that he has not previously been able to indulge um I guess because, you know, which which really makes sense for Owen because he's always very sensitive about appearing weak, so he wouldn't really have an opportunity to explore this. But with Jerry, it seems he's found somebody who uh, both is able to speak frankly to him, take him to task and be stern with him, but also somebody he can trust because she doesn't have ultimately power over him because, you know, he's, uh, he's part of the family and she's not. Uh, yeah, it, it's... 
it also helped really shine a light on why he was so interested in uh, keeping Tabitha around, because probably after the uh, the whole closed loop thing, he was thinking, okay, this is somebody who can sort of humiliate me. She humiliated Tom, right? You know? Uh, so that's probably where his mind was going for, not just, you know, the, uh, the wedding prank of, you know, bringing her there for the uh, drama of it all. Yeah, that's interesting. But perhaps because he and Tabitha are on more level footing, he's unable to ask for what he needs from her. Yeah. Uh, but that's interesting because, yeah, I know that, you know, just talking about Robin in the past, you know, we have thought that, like, you know, there's something weird here where he doesn't seem to be able to be intimate with anybody at all. Um, and we still haven't seen him be really physically intimate. Um, but now we know that he does have a thing. It's just something that he's not able to express with almost anybody except that he's now found it in Jerry. And I also think there's a little bit of mommy issues at play here um, without going too in-depth. I mean, I think a lot of the... Uh, fetish in terms of being humiliated and domed essentially like uh, can play into uh, the the different levels of the Oedipus complex and kind of the mommy issues and um, so I don't know it's 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 definitely interesting and um, I will say that I was not at all surprised to see this go down between Jerry and Roman on the phone how about you guys there's always been a vibe there. You just never really expect it to uh, go this far. Like, right. I, I, yeah. Yeah, the show's very good at letting things kind of simmer. And part of this, you know, is that there is a good vibe between Karen Culkin and J. Smith Cameron, who have worked together on other projects, um, you know, for Kenneth Lonergan. Um, you know, they were both in Margaret, as was Jeannie Berlin, although I don't think they shared any scenes in Margaret. Uh, but they've worked together before and known each other for a number of years. Um, so, yeah, there's 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 good. There's always been like, yeah, just a good rapport between them. And, you know, but the show, I think, is just so subtle and, you know, often leaves things simmering for a long time um, that uh, you don't. Yeah, you don't quite expect to see things uh, go off uh, in this way. Um, but there, there, um, there, there, there's enough hostile psychosexual dynamics on the show that aren't consummated that it almost <laughs> is a surprise when you know one does boil over. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. But uh, let's let's get into what's happening at Waystar Royco. So the uh, sub the sort of uh, uh, framing of this very fraught dramatic day is there's there's basically three main things that are going on. One is that it's Shiv's kind of first day at school. She's being brought in by Logan to do, uh, you know, ellipsis. We're not really sure. Um, Logan doesn't really seem to be sure. He asked her to come in at the end of the hunting episode, so you, we sense it was triggered by his feelings that there's nobody in the organization he can really trust, and he wants to keep his family closer to him. However, Shiv gets in there, and he's like, well, you know, I know you're good at PR, etc., uh, but otherwise, you know, we'll find you a room. I don't really have use for you. Um, number two, second thing that's going on is that there is a secret meeting being arranged with uh, Ray Jarrell, the CEO um, of uh, PGM, Pierce, the company that Logan's looking to acquire. That's going on, and uh, everybody's being kept on the outside of it except for uh, Ken and Frank. And the third event that ends up sort of triggering most of the drama is the controversy around an ATN anchor named, uh, I think, Mark Ravenhead, um, who previously appeared in Sad Sack Wasp Trap, uh, but is implied to be this uh, figure who's got ties to the far right. 
um, who's you know sort of Nazi friendly, who appeared at some sort of like far right conference with Nazi sympathizers, etc. And there's a whole day of you know protests going on outside ATN where Antifa shows up, and everybody has the sense that this could get very ugly. Yeah, Ravenhead is such a great name for a Nazi anchor. You know, it's just it's uh... such a Nazi name. It's crazy. Yeah. It's a fucking Bond villain name. <laughs> The guy has a great look, though, and yeah, one of the episode's best scenes is, um, or funniest scenes is Tom interviewing yeah. Ravenhead, trying to determine, you know, let's let's suss out, you know, just just how much of a Nazi are you? Are you are you like alt light, you know, and we can kind of sweep this under the rug, or is this a real problem? And uh, has that uh, great exchange where he asks him if he's read Mind Comp, and he says, yeah, a couple of times. Um, you know, and he asks if there are Easter eggs you didn't get the first time, and then he, uh, he tallies up the number of people who died in Europe, and he goes, uh, you're, you're light about six million there. Um, and, uh, the, it's, uh, yeah, so it seems they've just, they've got a real psycho on their hands, and Tom totally does not ha- want to have to be the one to point out, uh, to Logan that this guy is really bad news. Yeah, Tom's really looking for an out there, you know? He, he he says, I think earlier in the episode, he says, Nazis, terrible, right? Like, he, he he's kind of hoping somebody <laughs> tells him, no, 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 it's, it's, it's passable, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. So. it's when he's talking to Greg, and it's so, like, the his delivery, it's just really funny because he doesn't seem to believe they're <laughs> that bad. Um it's well, so it's, funny. Yeah, it's, this, it's this sense that for Tom, you know, he's used to everything just being on a sliding scale, right? right. So when Nazis come up, he's got to check, right? Like, Nazis are still bad, <laughs> right? But like, are we cool with Nazis now? Because if we are, great. If they're making me money and we're cool with them now, great. But I, I, I feel like I have to check. The other thing that's great about that scene, of course, is that uh, Tom and Greg are having that conversation where they've got their feet up on the back of some intern um, who has, you know, lost some bet and is now, yeah, human furniture. <laughs> Tom to humiliate. And Tom's like, yeah, it's going to be his turn to do it to me someday, which, of course, is like classic, you know, frat hazing justification is that like, yeah, you know, you'll do it to the other pledges someday. I doubt this was like intended, but. I love to read into everything. The intern's name was Jonah, and it, you know, brought me back. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if there was anything there or not, but again, little fun Easter eggs intended or not. Thank you, uh, writers and uh, everyone. So, I mean, for so this whole episode, you know, with these protests, this fascist anchor um, really kind of sets the stage where, you know, Greg's already feeling very uneasy. He's already expressed he's not comfortable with ATN because of his quote unquote principles that he seems to forget about pretty quickly. Um, He has a conversation with Sid earlier in the day. Um, where she uh, seems to, you know, try to be trying to peel him away from Tom, either because she likes Greg or just because she senses that it would destabilize Tom, probably both, um, more of the latter. Um, uh, side note, I just love that they had to get in that shot of Nicholas Braun towering over Jeannie Berlin, who is still, of <laughs> course, terrifying at literally half his height. She's something. She's amazing. Between her and Holly Hunter, it's a great episode for diminutive women in terrifying power suits. <laughs> I think something could come to fruition between between old Sid and and Greg. You never know. Although 
you know, it does take, uh, the story does take a little bit of a turn uh, as Tom later is facing potential blackmail, which we'll get to. But, but yeah, I'd love to see it Sid and Greg team up, frankly. Yeah, the more Jeannie Berlin, the better. Yeah, it was so weird just to have her in, like, the background of hunting, just, like, not participating um, while all that was going down. Um, but she got in the great line about Tom's sausage at the end of that episode. But to uh, to stay with uh, to stay with Tom and Greg, you know, the that that Ravenhead interview is interrupted by um, uh, the sound of uh, a gunshot and Tom immediately bolts out of the room you know, and uh, is just like shoving people away as he follows the security guard to a, uh, what does he call it? A secure location. And there, uh, he and a couple of other executives and Greg and the security guard end up holed up in this room um, where the the guard says, you know, we're, we're safe here. We're safe here. And Greg's like, no, we're not. How is this remotely safe? It's just a room. Um <laughs> And I'm just really curious about what that protocol was, because clearly, you know, the joke is that there's a second separate panic room that Tom's not invited to, that only the family (laughs) is invited to. And Tom, of course, is not technically family, uh, so he doesn't get to go or he's not taken there immediately. Uh, I I just love that. The progressively shittier panic rooms, uh, you know, right down to the one they took Roman to. Uh, it, it's, it's just, you know, the, 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 uh, the show in a nutshell, you know, how, how high status is your panic room? Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, precisely. Like how, uh, how nice are the kind of like airplane snacks you have in your panic room? Do you have just like a, a few crates of bottled waters or do you have the nice selection of like sun chips and things like that, that they have laid out in Logan's panic room? Right, like couches and nice plush chairs versus, you know, like plastic chairs and, and what they have at meetings. Um, what 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 uh, that scene called to me when when Tom is running down the hall saying and Greg following saying execu- executives coming through, executives coming through. It completely reminded me and took me back to Seinfeld. Um when George, oh, yeah. Cas- <laughs> when George, because I couldn't stop thinking about it. When George Costanza, I guess, I think he's at a kid's birthday party and there's a, like a fire uh, and he pushes all the kids out and and runs, you know, and leaves. And, and um, so I, I really, I, I couldn't even take in that scene. I was just thinking so much of Seinfeld and, and George Costanza. And um, I don't know, Jeremy, you're, you're a pretty big Seinfeld fan. It's, Am I right in that? No, no, you absolutely are. That's that's. Uh, I don't. I, I don't remember exactly when that episode aired, but it kind of you know ties into the uh, the '90s zeitgeist of you know Titanic and you know women and children first. Because what right. would you do on that lifeboat? You know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a, another interesting thing about Seinfeld was like it was not picked. Like people didn't like it early on, which. Uh, my mother would always remind me when I'd bitch about succession, not being like, she's like, people didn't like Seinfeld, uh, you know, but um, so they followed kind of a similar path. And uh, I do think some of the ways that Armstrong um, deals with some of these unlikable characters, although I don't think Armstrong cares if they're likable or not, frankly. Um, but in this show and especially in peep shows, uh Way is is pretty similar to um, 
Seinfeld and like these horrible people that you're drawn to uh, and probably do like and also may or may not relate to these horrible aspects. And, um, you know, I, I'd never really quite drawn that connection before, but, uh, but it, yeah, it made me think of that as well. Yeah, no, uh, I, I always felt Peep Show was kind of the, the Seinfeld of, you know, the, uh, the 2000s. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, like yeah. people say it's always sunny or like these other cringe shows and it's it's like it's not because you relate to them. I don't you know, and you root for them regardless of them. You know, it, it's different. Exactly, Go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's 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 completely that. It's it's this uh, the the it's the you know just observational of just the pettiest worstness of human beings and just how relatable that is. And that's uh, part of what succession carries through is just that kind of. Uh, Interiority of just uh, just human shittiness, and it's great. Yeah, I, and I have to say, part of me like was like a defensive thing because I was like, why the after talking about Peep Show and Episode One and how I related and others necessarily didn't, I was like, what my fucking horrible person? And um, I, I've come to conclusion, no, everyone else is wrong, and <laughs> I, Jeremy, you and I are right. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't want to uh, let uh, It's Always Sunny be collateral damage in this conversation because even if it's not the Seinfeld of the 2000s, it's uh, a stone-cold classic in its own right. Absolutely. I, 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 I'm not shit-talking Always Sunny here. Yeah, yeah. I should definitely uh, asterisk that with I am a huge Always Sunny fan. Charlie Day, Marry Me, along with Jeremy Strong and Kieran Culkin probably, but... No, it's a brilliant. It's, it's a, we'll have a poly. It'll be great. Um, but no, Sonny. Quite, quite a safe room you've got there. <laughs> or a panic room. But um, yeah, I love Sonny. Uh, yeah, yeah. D Dennis Reynolds would be, uh, you know, probably uh, in another life he could have been Tom Wom get Tom Womgans, you know, just because he's that type of. Uh, uh, he has that high opinion of himself. He has that ambition. It's just, you know, uh, t t Tom got the girl, I think. Yeah. I do want to give a shout out to uh, Matthew McFadden, who is in um, a title. Um, he's in a film called The Assistant. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. I think I mentioned this in the chat, Kate, but um, uh, this film uh, um, stars uh, Julie Garner from um, uh, Ozark and the Americans as the assistant to a Harvey Weinstein-esque figure. Oh, um, yeah. It was it just premiered at Telluride. It got some good notices from some critics I admire. And so I'm very interested to see it. And Matthew McFadden apparently plays uh, an HR representative in uh, in that movie. Um, and what I can only imagine is probably a cousin to Tom somehow. Um, so I'm very interested to see that. It'll be interesting to see these um, actors like post-succession which i hope it never ends but if they'll be able to live down their roles you know will tom will and they're all talented so like it's i you know but i, I mean, yeah, I, don't mean that as, I don't mean that as an insult but like they will i mean some roles are just so defining um like louise reese uh julia louise streifus but she was able to live down Elaine Bennis. Yep. Poor, poor Matthew McFadden, who thought he was going to be typecast <laughs> as Mr. Darcy forever, but instead is going to be typecast as the avatar of awful Midwestern social climbing forever. 
yeah, I, I was actually thinking about the cast thing and uh, who's going to get, uh, you know, defined by this. I think Sarah Snook really has a chance to have uh, the type of career where y- y- people could remember her for other things. But I think I, I was just thinking Jeremy Strong, that what he's doing on this show is so unique that I really wonder, no matter how many great roles he gets, if anybody's going to ever use him in just this this great, unique way again. Uh, you know, that, that that's my question. It's a, very, it's a very slippery thing he does, too. You know, it's just like you, you can't imagine typecasting him as this because who else could do this? Like what other project accommodates this kind of, you know, leading man performance with this amount of, you know, self-doubt and just like kind of inward imploding? It's just it's not the kind of thing that leading men get a chance to do. And I mean, Strong has not gotten a lot of leading uh, leading roles, at least on screen. He's played a lot of minor roles, a lot of mi- a lot of supporting roles. Um, you know, yeah, I think, I think Snoot could have a great career, you know, she gives me like Charlotte Rampling vibes. Um, but, uh, but strong. Yeah. I sense that he probably, you know, uh, I wonder if this is just going to be a high point for him and he may get a lot of, he may get a lot of like good roles, but you know, it's, you know, Sorkin, that kind of thing, stuff that doesn't quite use him to his, his potential. Yeah. I don't Go ahead, Jeremy. No. Uh, no, Well, what, what Jeremy Strong is doing is kind of, uh, it's it's heavy, but it's not loud. And you know, so many roles today out there are loud. You know, so many people would play this loud. Uh, so it, it is, it's it's going to be interesting to see who out there can use them the right way. The opportunity is there uh, for some smart director. You know, you can imagine Soderbergh doing amazing things with him. But yeah, you you don't want to see him in a Sorkin thing. You don't want to see him where he just has to you know talk the audience to death. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, because so many of the great Kendall moments are him, like, not talking or just, like, failing to talk, failing to express himself properly. You know, the inability to say what you're thinking. Um, and, well, of course, that is going to take us to the the amazing kind of conclusion of this episode, which I don't want to get to yet. Well, um, yeah, and I think in, in the show, uh, you know, you, you have to wonder if there's writing in another film or show that will give a man in... in maybe you guys are a lot more um you know film geeks part of film twitter type stuff but like you know any other writing that gives a man a man this much emotional dimension um so i you know i wonder if it's not just like you know can anyone else utilize him but like are there going to be roles that would even allow him to go there and and pull what you know what he was able to um, so far in succession. Yeah, that was kind of what I was thinking of when I was talking a minute ago was just how to express that. But just the the way that this show puts him in the position of kind of being mm. a leading man, but also makes his his chief characteristic, you know, basically weakness um, and this fragility. And uh, yeah, it's true that you don't see that very much. You see there are kind of opportunities sometimes to do that, you know, and, you know, maybe more antagonistic roles where somebody's a little bit freer to, you know, portray frailty um, or portray like a flawed character. Um, but I think the thing that's uniquely fascinating about this is that he's allowed to be weak and that's uh, allowed to be something, you know, in the character who's, you know, although these characters are meant to be unsympathetic in many ways, he's still, um, uh, you know, most chiefly the protagonist of the show. Yeah, it, it's he, he's he's allowed to be vulnerable in the actual sense of the word, not TV vulnerable, not you know movie vulnerable. He, he's 
it's something else, that's for sure. Right, and not to go down a tangent, we can cut this, but, you know, are there a ton of films that give men that much emotional space? There's, there's very few films, there's very few films that give, I think, this kind of space to actors in general, is what I would say. Um, you know, that would, I think what we've talked about, and we talked about this last week on Hunting, the way that succession draws from theater and the way that scenes are allowed to build in ways that they usually don't uh, on TV, you know, applies to film, too. You, you just don't, you don't see that too much, you know, anymore, at least on, you know, in, in American film. Um, you know, where, where scenes really build and play out and, you know, are allowed to take on a life of their own and performances are given, you know, room to kind of luxuriate in silences and, you know, the, the not knowing how to express yourself, that kind of thing. Um, I can't think of too many directors aside of, you know, outside of like the very top level ones, um, the obvious ones that come to mind, um, that are doing that. Um, it's just a kind of a rare thing in general. Thanks. Sorry for the digression. Oh no, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a road I'm happy to go down. Um, I, I, I guess I do want to kind of close out the the Tom and Greg stuff, um, where uh, you know the Tom and Greg sort of have you know as as Tom says he asks Greg, are you attempting to break up with me? When Greg asks if it would be okay if he goes and works somewhere else, prompting this, of course, you know meme worthy tantrum from uh, Tom, where he starts hurling water bottles at Greg, where you. Of course, the thing that the script and the direction points you to as the real trigger for him is when Greg uses the unfortunate analogy of calling it a business open relationship, which just, of course, brings up for Tom all these thoughts about how he just has no control over any of the relationships in his life. Um, and, you know, now, you know, not only is his wife stepping out on him, as she did in the last episode, um, and he had to hear about it, if only indirectly. Um, but now this guy he thought was his buddy he wants to to move on and uh, leave him alone, um, and uh, that that just prompts this incredible flailing um, from Tom. You know, we're we're talking about the way that you know Ken um, is allowed to model just like frailty and weakness, etc. And Tom really does that too, you know, <laughs> but in a very different way um, in this episode. Uh, it, it is a just just a world class breakdown, and it really reminds me of a. Uh... Uh, on the thick of it, uh, there's this character, Glenn Cullen. Uh, yes! Who, uh, he, he has a big meltdown uh, when I, where he just starts, you know, just thrashing about, you know, when he feels nobody's taking him seriously. And Tom is just in exactly that same position where nobody is taking him seriously. Nobody is giving him, you know, any kind of just leeway at all. And he just, just snaps. Jeremy, I'm going to order you to go to my pin tweet, which is precisely the video of the Glenn meltdown. Awesome. Uh, which is at the beginning of the series. And we see other characters meltdown throughout the seasons. But um, I really love the Glenn meltdown. It's, it's one of the best and speaks to like so much about the alienation of work and, and, it's just fantastic, and I love that. I love that meltdown. So I'm so glad you referenced it. Um, right. Yeah, it, and and it, it's really such a trigger, as you mentioned, Brendan, with the open relationship. And I, I will say though, 
I don't agree with how Tom like went about it, the throwing of the the water bottles and uh, he starts to yell after that. And I don't remember precisely what he yells, but it for me, it was a moment of I really appreciate it when characters are finally able to kind of like achieve or um, reach a certain point. Uh, that they they haven't been able to before that's like been repressed or or just simmering under or a part of the unconscious and he's just able to let out how he's really feeling and uh, so I, I was happy for him in that regard and Greg can deal with it whatever he, yeah, can, take, uh, <laughs> he, he can take a lot of psychological pain is what I'm saying <laughs> this is true he's, he's 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 a more healthy person so you know it's Sometimes you got to take a few uh, clean connecting water bottles, you know, and that's, that's the price you got to pay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the line is uh, when he shouts the security guard, you know, this is executive level business. Um, <laughs> and uh, a friend of the show, Shelley Farmer, I think, was talking about how McFadden uh, really uses just like the volume and tonality of his voice in these instances. And that always ties into, you know, his terrific Midwestern act. Uh, accent work the way that his voice gets like really choked when he says that um i I can't quite duplicate it i wonder if we could splice in the audio because the delivery is just like like it kind of sounds like his accent is breaking he kind of like does the like when uh mcfadden's accent slips he sounds like sort of muppety for a minute um and he kind of does that here but it uh but it also just like i think works perfectly for the desperation that the character is feeling he's also a piece of shit himself so yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, but again like i said tom is uh the role tom is in he's basically bill shine at this point so you know cool um and uh uh before we leave that uh that uh safe room i just want to uh, mention i think i think the best line in the episode which is when greg uh alludes to his concern that a small person or attack child could fit through the window attack uh, child uh, that yeah that's that's this season's fly boys you know it's it's we're, we're, we're all attack children now yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know you're not alone in that, Brendan. I saw so many, like, just simple tweets that were literally attack child or, like, a friend of the pod, Mark, has changed his Twitter name to attack child. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's very funny. Greg's delivery is, of course, great. It's um, kind of like it's kind of like cellar door. It just has a musicality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the capper on that Tom and Greg storyline is when uh, – Greg, uh, they leave the they leave the room. Tom makes a, uh, a half-hearted apology that I actually kind of like. I don't know how half-hearted it is. Um, it may be as sincere as Tom's capable of being when he says, "I don't always like who I am," um, which is, actually I think is a quite a vulnerable. <sighs> but um, uh, Greg uh, finally deploys the blackmail material that he has, or attempts to deploy the blackmail material by mentioning to Tom that he's kept some of the documents from the death pit. And, uh, is, and would this be a bad time to bring those up to you? And as Tom says, you're like, are you asking me if you can blackmail me? Um, uh, but you know, Tom seems to take some glee in this. And I mean, you know, superficially you can read this as, you know, he's proud of his protege for being as much of a scumbag as he is, but I'm wondering if there's a bit more to the relief there, you know, maybe it's easier for Tom to countenance the idea that Greg's moving on from him. If he thinks that, you know, Greg is more of an equal and it's, it's, it's less, it's, it's not as painful for him to stomach if uh, Greg, uh, if Greg's not just a lackey and he's somebody who's you know capable of this great cunning, suddenly that lessens the humiliation for him. 
Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's. I, I I think he 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 is delighted. You know, he's he's hiding. Uh, you know, his, his anxiety well, but I think he is he is sincerely pleased, and he also manages to get the victory where he just he's still keeping Greg in the uh, ATN fold. You know, he's not going to another division. He 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 he's almost tricked him in a way uh, off this blackmail heat uh, into staying on. You know, staying in the Death Star. Yeah, I was surprised that Greg bought into that so quickly. I guess I shouldn't be or shouldn't have been. But, um, yeah, he offers, you know, a nicer office, a better title, more money. Um, And I thought, you know, for sure Greg would be like, well, you know, it's against my principles or. But, uh, no, Greg's on board for it. I just had an awful premonition that the Greg trajectory (laughs) is going to be like the Harry Crane trajectory. I, I think he's going to be a more successful Harry Crane, though, because I really feel like he, he he's learning lessons on how to win, not just, you know, be a purely just abject nightmare human being. Uh, but he, he he's 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 getting the tools from Tom on how to actually get ahead uh, in, in his own way, I think. Yeah, I've been a proponent of probably I don't know if it was literally day one, episode one, but um you know, in terms of thinking that Greg has quite the future uh, at, at Waystar Royco. Um, and just quickly to circle back to um, the sometimes I don't like myself line, you know, what really interests me at this, sh- this show at, at its best is it's emo- when it's, emo- it's emotional resonance, it's vulnerability, the drama, the tragedy. And um, I had notated that in and somehow got got lost Brenda but thank you so much for bringing it up because I thought it was so perceptive um and vulnerable as you said and and I wonder if that exists in some of the other characters that just haven't shown it yet um which is like you know there's no point in kind of uh you know speculating but um but yeah I thought that was a really really important line and uh Maybe Tom is growing a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I think it's kind of ambiguous what growing would consist of for Tom <laughs> and in which direction he's growing. Uh, so, so maybe, but maybe that's not a good thing. Um, but let's, um, yeah. So let's circle around to the A plot, um, which is um, some combination of what's going on with Ken, Shiv, and Logan in this episode. Um, I, I, I think we skipped over the initial sort of like ATN meeting. Um, but this is also one of my favorite lines of the episode when, um, uh, Tom walks into the boardroom and sees Shiv just observing in the corner and just completely inappropriately barks out like way too loud, no volume control. Who's the hot intern? And she's just (laughs) like waves him off. (laughs) Another instance of yeah, McFadden using his his voice to great effect. Um, but um, uh, in that, there's there's another instance of um, and we haven't talked about the directors of um, uh, this episode who are um, oh god, Jeremy, can you help me out here? Uh, Robert Polcini and Sherry, Sherry Springer Berman. Sherry Springer Berman, yes, of um. God, and I'm forgetting American American Splendor. American Splendor, thank you. I'm just filling in just like random nouns after American because <laughs> so there's like a million. Movies. There, there, there's a lot of American. Movies, 
yes, but uh, yeah. So we have, um, you know, a lot of the directors uh, in this on Succession are, you know, you know, career television directors, etc. Um, those two have done television before, I think, but they've also had a career in film, um, most notably American Splendor. Um, and there was just a really nice bit in this scene that I remember is something that I thought the show would have handled differently in season one where um, uh, Logan and Ken and Frank are having the conversation about how the meeting for with Rhea is on for lunch. And uh, Logan is very proud and he, you know, puts his hands on Ken's shoulders and the camera cuts to Shiv seeing this interaction through glass and her reaction of just being on the outside of something. You know, even as she's kind of on the inside of this boardroom where she wanted to be, she still finds herself on the outside where she really wants to be of the important conversations with her father. And that just struck me as something that the show would have handled differently in season one, um, where you had a lot more of this, like, you know, the camera would have swung around and done one of those snap zooms on Shiv or something like that. Uh, but instead we're seeing, you know, editing montage you know cinema um and it's it was just a, it was just a cool moment uh i thought uh but the um uh but Rhea Jarrell is of course played by actual uh legend goddess holly hunter in this episode and she uh i don't know what did you guys make of uh, holly hunter's uh, first appearance on this show you know what did you, what did you think she brought to the that meeting with logan and ken well first of all talk about season two flex casting that that is classic second season flex casting getting holly hunter on your show uh but i thought the important part is that she actually fits in great because she's got this very kind of nervy confidence uh and that just really mm, yeah. sort of meshes well off the others uh so yeah i i i thought she was uh, brought a lot of uh, intrigue to the show yeah yeah, concur. And I think uh, nervy, you know, energy and confidence, um, you know, is a great way to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to put, you know, almost anybody in a room opposite, you know, Brian Cox and have them, you know, square off as equals. The show's done a, a pretty good job of that um, so far, um, especially with the women they've put opposite Logan, you know, with, you know, Harriet Walters and Holly Hunter, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the lunch is interesting because it's, it's very, it's very cagey and it seems like, um, Logan and Ken don't quite know how to get what they want. Um, they're trying to persuade her to make this deal, but they also know that, um, the family's been spooked by Roman's clumsy overtures in the previous episode. And uh, Rhea is just sort of an emissary and she's, um, you know, it's in a model of, you know, how a certain type of person gets to be successful. She's unwilling to say too much about her actual feelings about things. And she remains very cagey mm -hmm. throughout this episode. Um, and didn't they have like unsuccessful overtures in the past even? Uh, not just like in the yeah, last, they... yeah. Yeah, they allude to a previous, uh, obviously unsuccessful takeover bid in the past. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the lunch, they aren't able, uh, Kendall nor um, Logan, really able to find like what it is that Pierce would be after. But later in the safe room or, uh, you know, I think they are able to kind of uh, suss out what it is she's looking for or would be responsive to. And I don't know if we want to go there right now. Um, Cause that's yes. later on, but yeah, yeah, money. I mean, you know, they start, they start calling out numbers. Um, 
which well i think i think the <laughs> sorry <laughs> i think the first conversation and that initial lunch is sort of like prelude to what happens in the uh the safe room or panic room uh where they go after the uh you know the gunshot um and uh that's where of course ken logan shiv end up locked up with raya because raya is of course the vip in the building so she gets to go to the real safe room um and that's where they're able to make a more obviously concerted effort to win her over but the interesting thing that's in that that's in that scene the factor that's different is shiv and so the conversation seems to play out a bit differently but it also doesn't seem like Shiv is necessarily, you know, totally in control of the situation. It's not like, oh, Shiv is here and she's the perfect puzzle piece that's missing that enables us to, you know, steer this conversation the way we want it to go. She has her ideas about it, um, but it doesn't quite seem like she's totally comfortable there um, or that she and, you know... Uh, her brother and her father are on the same page. Right. I think she's picking up what Logan and uh, Kendall are kind of the vibes they're sending. And she isn't um, in the right space and uh, not on the same page in terms of how Logan and Kendall are thinking about the deal. And I mean, she seems to try to, um, uh, you know, question Kendall's method of like, you know, just offering certain numbers and, and the fact that does he have the authority to do so to dad, which again is an ongoing tension between Kendall and Shiv throughout, throughout the episode. Um, well, she, she has sort of an interesting approach where she, we know that Shiv is opposed to the deal because she's said so privately. Uh, but when she's in the sure. room with Rhea, I don't know, there may be something where she's, you know, she can't resist trying to prove herself useful or just gets a charge out of the situation. But she seems to take an interesting tactic of, I don't know if you would call it negging, but she, uh, she, uh, she takes the approach of saying, look, I don't believe in the deal um, because of X. And, you know, I don't believe in the deal because of, you know, the, uh, you know, the business case doesn't make sense to me. And Rhea says, well, the business case does make sense to me because there are all these mm -hmm. great synergies we could achieve um, with our two organizations coming together. We could unify all these departments, lay off all these people, et cetera, um, save ourselves all this money. Um, but it's the it's the cultures that don't make sense. And then Shiv starts going into that. And so she sort of prompts Rhea to make the case herself for why the deal would work. But, you know, she still doesn't necessarily totally believe in it. And um, Ken and Logan, meanwhile, seem unified on this strategy of just kind of raw, blunt force, um, which we saw uh, Ken using before with Walter, et cetera, right? Just keep bidding it up until it's, you know, the stupid number, basically. <laughs> uh-huh. And I think the numbers are similar in the vaults. Like, they're almost in the exact same ballpark, if not, like, the same numbers. Uh, um, I would be interested to look that up. It would be funny if the New York Times was going for the same price I, as you know, well, Vice I or think, something. I think he was offering 23 mil in, in the premiere, uh, the pilot, and then they're offering starting at like 22. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll look it up. They're, um, saying, they're saying billion and billion with a B. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. My yeah, mistake. If the, if the New York Times is only worth twenty three million, they're they're in trouble. Um, yeah. But um. But there's a yeah. But there's an interesting yeah. The the 
so Logan eventually gets kind of impatient with Shiv, uh, Shiv's more sort of um, perhaps subtle negotiations. Um, it may help Rhea in some sense to see that Shiv and her relatively more tactful way of doing things is in the room. That may be something that, that helps her feel better about it. Um, but Logan eventually, you know, gets very transparent and says, look, you know, you can set up all these structures about editorial independence, etc. But you know that I'm big enough and I'm mean enough that if I want something, I'm going to get my way. So you just have to decide whether you can trust me when I say that I want this deal enough to promise you to leave you alone if we do it. Um, uh, and uh, that, uh, that's the. Uh, I, I just really loved that, that, uh, you know, that do you trust me as Brian Cox is kind of sitting there like Lucifer himself, you know, uh, you can smell the brimstone <laughs> yeah. in the air, you know, and yeah, do you trust me? I could completely destroy you and go around you anyhow, but do you trust me? Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's almost like he's not really asking that question, right? It's almost like, is this enough for you to ignore all the doubts you have about it? You know, um, basically just like, are you satisfied? Right. Because, yeah, yeah. Who could who could trust him in that situation or in any situation? Right. Where he's basically saying, you know, I'm big enough to take you for whatever you're worth. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> Rhea has that line where she, uh, you know, um, Shiv pitches as a uh, um, uh, beauty and the beast. And uh, she says, you know, it's telling that your best spin on this <laughs> still sounds rapey. Going back to ATN culture, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, God. Um, but so eventually they're all let out because it's found that the source of the gunshot was an ATN um, producer who shot himself at his desk and had complained of a culture of bullying um, before, and, uh, which obviously, as we saw, you know, uh, human footstools, etc. exists. Um, so they're eventually let out and uh, Rhea seems to be more favorably disposed to the deal. Um, saying that if they'll fire Ravenhead, then uh, she'll be in a better position to make a pitch to the family. Um, uh, but there's a, a very obviously another very telling exchange where uh, Logan tells Ken good work and then just kind of nods to Shiv. Um, so obviously this first day at school, even though she's tried to pitch uh. in, hasn't really panned out the way she'd hoped. There's no grace period. There, there, there's no uh, nothing she was probably hoping for uh you, you know there's no honeymoon it's it's just completely you know going off that uh grotesque tom analogy uh you know it was bordering on uh, incest from the teaser uh but you know th th there's no honeymoon going on here it's it's just right from the beginning right from the moment she got selected as the chosen one it's she's already out of disfavor uh just because that's the way logan works right like kendall has the space in the office, which was one her first si signal in this episode that like things may not be going her way and Kendall may be in favor. And uh, another point, I mean, there are multiple, so we don't have to hash them all out. But uh, in in the meeting, um, when they're talking about Ravenhead, uh, and Shiv says something to the to to the group, and uh, Logan replies, oh, "Don't listen to her; she's not here." Um, which she had said previously, but, but yeah, again, like the, she's and then it was really painful at the end when, um, Rhea leaves and the good work, Kendall. And I mean, the obvious pain 
Shiv was feeling at that time, you know, was was pretty difficult. Um, you know, I imagine it's such a drop for her from her expectations, thinking that she was, you know, she's the smartest. He knows that now. This isn't a joke. This is real. You know, and I think that she's starting to, you know, emotionally realize that that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, again, her dad is a snake, which she knew all along, like in an intellectual sense, but emotionally still was giddy and excited that he was finally bringing her in, et cetera. And I think she's starting to kind of like, you know, definitely get that she may never be the one. Right. And the question that she's asking herself, you know, is why is Ken so much closer to your dad after he's betrayed him? You know, what does he have that I don't that I don't? And that sets up this yep. um, this final scene, this climactic scene between Ken and Shiv, which I mean, if I think about the stuff that this show does, you know, that does well and the way that it builds on this structure of just like tragedy and melodrama, you know, between actors and lets, you know, scenes play out in a way that you don't see them on television. I mean, this scene was just like, just, you know, just like cuts you in half. I mean, it, it, it mm-hmm. is really exquisitely, um, felt, um, in a, in just a really painful way that I think I, I haven't felt on this show before, maybe at all. Um, you know, last season, I don't think they were quite at this, at the, level of expressing things through the direction and the the structure of the writing and build and building that together with the acting um as they are in this season and the way this episode builds to the climax i think was just it really just leveled me um it's i don't know i I have quite a bit to say about this but i want to ask how you guys felt about the the ken and shiv scene no it's it's as devastating as it is delicate it's just uh really uh, yeah it, it just the, the just the deftness is what really surprised me it, it just had this soft touch it's it's the definition of knock you over with a feather because they're not doing this flashy work they're not doing this loud work mm-hmm. it's just it just pulls you in and just knocks you over yeah yeah i couldn't really say it better than you guys at all uh it definitely moved me Shiv, you know, eyes were watering at different points and um, especially the piece. He says, Kendall says out front, up front that I'm not going to be the one. But then after the hug, he says, it ain't going to be me. And there's this haunting kind of question of how and why he's suggesting it ain't going to be me, which looms over the entire episode with Kendall in terms of suicidal ideation and um and and I think that you know Brendan has some stuff to say about um a little more a lot more about that he has some really good insights on the Ken and Shiv moment so I don't want to go there but or or you know move on but um yeah the ink it ain't gonna be me and his tears I mean it was just as a Kendall lover jeremy strong i mean you know you all know if you're listeners that i'm like i don't know what i am but um (laughs) with him uh, i relate to him i there's an emotional connection and um i i feel his pain every week um i experience 
you know, and project my own emotional stuff through, through his experience a lot of times. I mean, is, you know, normal, um, but also kind of sick. But anyways, yeah, that, that point, it ain't going to be me. And, and his eyes were just killer. But um, Brendan, I'd really love to hear you um, talk some more about Shiv and, and, Jer- and Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought of I thought of a couple I thought of a couple of things. First is just a superficial thing that the show reminded me of. Thinking about Kenneth Lonergan, I thought of the scene in Manchester by the Sea when you know Casey Affleck's character um, has to tell Lucas Hedges that he you know can't stay in that town that has this painful history for him and be his guardian because, as he says, I can't beat it. Um, you know this idea that this thing that hangs over him is going to be with him forever and is going to define him and you know just kind of acknowledging that that pain is always going to be with him is just kind of something that this recalled to me and you know I'm thinking of Lonergan often you know watching this show because of the connections with the actors I've mentioned earlier um but um oh god uh to yeah so I'm winding up towards something here so bear with me but um there's um you know the structure of this episode um, which is called Safe Room. Um, we were talking a little bit before, me and Kate, about how you know the more appropriate term for what the title is literally referring to is a panic room, but they call it a safe room, I think, because when you call it a safe room, you invoke this idea of you know safety, you know safe spaces of shelter, etc., and the way that these characters are sheltered or kept safe from various things that they'd rather not be exposed to. Um, and you know, what does the safe room refer to? You know, there's this, um, I, I think of the succession of sort of, you know, enclosures that these characters are in, you know, the idea of the dog cage that's been brought up many times, the idea of a kennel, um, uh, with, uh, with Roman and Ken and, you know, the idea of this, this building itself of, you know, Waystar Royco headquarters, you know, where there's these protests, Antifa, this threatened, these threats of violence on the outside that they're being kept safe from. And also that the idea that the family itself is a kind of safe room where they are protected from, you know, most kind of human conflict, etc., because they everything is mitigated through capital and money and power plays for them. And they're rarely forced to deal with emotions, you know, and feelings about family and feelings about themselves, self-doubt, et cetera, that is not in some way mitigated by money. Um, but thinking about all that, um, you know, and thinking about the way that, you know, Ken is seen, you know, twice or actually three times in this episode, going up to the roof and looking out over the city, you know, and you can only imagine that what he's thinking of is, you know, the fall, the jump, the escape, um, from that safety. What I thought of during this scene of Ken and Shiv, um, where Shiv seems for the first time in a while to consider not just that Ken has some leverage over their father or that he has some longer game he's playing, but that there might be some kind of tragedy or there, there might be some kind of pain here that she's not privy to. What it reminded me was this passage from, um, uh, from the novel Middlemarch, uh, by George Eliot. Um, and the, what I think of as the climax of that novel, which is the encounter between the two characters, Dorothea and Rosamund. And if you haven't read Middlemarch, obviously there's a, it's a very long novel, but the, I think the thrust of the scene is that, um, the two characters, you know, have rarely spoken and don't necessarily like each other. Um, 
they have, you know, Dorothea has a specific reason for being with Rosamund there, but they, in, you know, kind of sitting with each other and they find themselves because Middlemarch is in so many ways about the idea of disappointment, about being disappointed in your life, about kind of failing in your ideals for yourself. Um, they find themselves just kind of uh, experiencing this transcendent um, sort of solace in each other and this grief um, for their, their dreams, for their lives. And there's this passage that really spoke to me as I was thinking about this scene um, that I'll just read briefly. Um, it was a new crisis in Rosmond's experience that even Dorothea could imagine. She was under the first great shock that had shattered her dream world in which she had been easily confident of herself and critical of others. And this strange, unexpected manifestation of feeling in a woman whom she had approached with a shrinking aversion and dread as one who must necessarily have a jealous hatred towards her made her soul totter all the more with a sense that she had been walking in an unknown world which had just broken in upon her. And the moment where, you know, Ken asks Shiv to embrace him. And as we've you know seen in previous episodes, you know, Ken can barely, you know, bring himself to touch his own child at this point um, because he's so much of a shell of a person and he allows himself to kind of, you know, cry in his sister's arms. You know, the thing that's transformative there is I think for Shiv, the idea that there's, there's more here than just her and her father and her dreams of power and even just her relationship with her father. But there's this whole world of, you know, feeling and, you know, tragedy that exists outside her. And that is something that is so alien to these characters who rarely have to think of a world outside them. And, you know, the final image of this episode is these walls of glass that Ken sees that have been put up to prevent future suicides at ATN, right? Um, he goes up and he feels the cage closing in around him as Shiv has the sense that, you know, the world is starting to break through for her too. Um, and that to me is just an incredibly potent drama that this episode expresses through action and writing and image that I <laughs> haven't seen on the show before at this level. And I have not seen on TV, I think almost ever. Good spiel. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, it was pretty that. moving. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't quite know how to follow that up, you know? I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing, I, I, I haven't felt this way about a television show since Mad Men. Uh, and this is starting to take on the real feel of those late seasons of Mad Men where history is happening off screen in the distance behind them and everybody's kind of... Uh, breaking down a little bit uh and there, there there's kind of this uh you know encroaching depression and anxiety and there, there, there's this uh i haven't seen television with so many uh you know references to suicidal ideation since you know mad men season five where you know every other episode somebody was doodling a noose or something like that uh and so this is uh yeah it, it's just television with such a sense of self and sense of story and sense of the moment and it's just uh watching Kendall up there in the glass it's just yeah it's, it's just breathtaking it's just uh, these scenes between Shiv and Kendall are are the type of scenes we haven't seen you know uh in a long while uh, it's it's really staggering stuff right and I I really think it's fascinating that the ep the episode is actually 
bookended by Kendall being on the rooftop. Both that's the cold open uh, at the beginning. He's on the rooftop looking down. Um, if you're not familiar with what su- suicidal ideation is, it's you know where you're contemplating, thinking about suicide, and if you've ever been there, I think uh, you know looking down. Um, and getting on the step up to even get higher, closer to the the top of the rail and looking down, um, you know, we have a clear indication of what's going on in Kendall's mind. Um, I haven't quite, I have experienced suicidal ideation, not, not on um, high buildings, but, you know, when you're driving. And I, I know other people have felt this and you have an instinct to, you know, go off the road or, or something to that degree and it's you know immensely powerful and haunting stuff it's incredibly scary um and you know and then as, as we said at the end um you know it ends with with Kendall up on the rooftop again but this time there's glass and he's uh you know pressing his face against the glass um Again, I feel like we know what's going on with him. We can feel it in his energy um, and, ins- and inside his brain. And um, uh, this time, uh, he closes his eyes uh, for for a brief moment, and then he opens his eyes uh, out to the gla- out to the world. And that's when uh, the scene is cut. Um, and it's just so emotionally powerful um especially coming after that the 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 shiv and and candle scene which is really emotionally powerful as well and um you know this made me this one of the very first episodes i felt pretty fond of logan um because i do think that he had the glass installed for kendall he's constantly asking how kendall is like when he first goes into the safe room, how's Kendall? Where's Kendall? Um, and I think he really is concerned for Kendall's well-being. Is um, and uh, yeah. So, so, so I, you know, it's it's an incredibly. I think it, like you said, it's something. You know, we haven't seen in on TV in in a really long time. Um, for me, it's more Sopranos than Mad Men, but uh, I mean you know, we can split hairs about great television shows. It's it's absurd too. So, so anyways, that's my spiel. Um, and, uh, love you, Kendall. I, I, I hope you can come back from this baby. (laughs) There, 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 there is one connection I sort of made that, uh, just a season one flashback, which is uh, and shows you the difference between the brothers. That uh, you know, when Roman Roy was faced with uh, existential angst and staring out at this city through a glass window, he just decided to uh, close the blinds and jerk off. You know, oh it's, wow! Uh, <laughs> uh, so it just, just shows you how much the difference between the brothers and just where this show is at. You know, eleven episodes later. Oh. Fuck, man! <laughs> this show is just like. I, I don't even know if it's if I mean it may be above all these other shows. Who cares about rankings? But like, 
you know, I, I don't know how people didn't get this in the first season. And, you know, I'm, I, I would be lying if I didn't say there was a little resentment, although I'm so glad it's getting its due, but like for the Johnny come lately's in season two, but, um, well, I, I try to balance that with the resentment I feel for the people who are being paid to write about this show, but don't like it. Ugh. Um, I was I got myself in a very somber place uh, with my monologue and was wondering how I was going to come back from that. And then I got myself all riled up thinking about uh, some particularly awful reviews of the show that I read this week, um, which it's it's fairly late in our recording and I don't want to get into it. Um, but uh, fuck that guy. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave aside uh, kind of some of the, uh, you know, it's best left to the DMs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I will say that the person that we might be speaking of allegedly uh, was kind enough to say, let Kate enjoy her show and not belabor because there was a little, a little talk going on on the, on the timeline. But yeah, all uh, intra critic disputes here are parody and not actionable. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I think we've been quite thorough here. Um, do we have any stray observations or closing thoughts before we uh, say goodbye? Thrilled to have you come on, Jeremy. Yeah, no, ha happy to, you know, finally, uh, you know, uh, cross the uh, Roycast off my list. Uh, I've been hearing about this podcast since uh, way back when. So, uh, yeah. Just, <laughs> no, I, baby, I, it's not all the way off yet. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I'm, I'm just happy I made the pilgrimage. Yes. Yeah. To me, there's only two Jeremys in this world, and that's Jeremy Strong and Jeremy Monjo. Uh, Jeremy Strong will be the name of my charity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get bracelets and everything. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a second. <laughs> that's, that's the hashtag. Jeremy, you have a Twitter at you wanna? Yeah, I'm. Uh, you can find me at uh, Jeremy Monjo, and uh, you know, uh, well, every Sunday night, you know what I'll be tweeting about. Uh, well, thank you. yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy. It 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 really was a really was a treat. Um, you were, I think, one of the people I most wanted to get on this show to chat about, and I'm I'm so glad we were able to do it. Yeah, it's a, it was a worthy brand collab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Everyone else is listening. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week. Bye bye. I guess I just must be a daredevil. I don't feel anything until I smash it up. I'm caught on the cold, caught on the hot. Not so with the warmer lot. And all I want's a confidant to help me laugh it off. And don't let me. Ooh.